On September 12, 1995, McKay Everett disappeared from his home in Conroe, Texas. There was no sign of forced entry. It was just as if McKay had walked out of his own free will. And to this day, McKay's mother, Paulette, feels that justice was never truly served. Ransom is available now. Listen at ransompodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The following program contains distressing content and graphic details regarding suicide. This may be triggering for survivors of suicide loss and those with lived experience. Please proceed with caution. If you're in crisis or having thoughts of suicide, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255 or text TALK to 741-741. For more resources, please visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention's website at afsp.org slash find support. This is the emergency medical technician who responded to the scene on February 26, 2014. I was the paramedic. I was the only paramedic that on scene, me and my partner. When we walked in, it was very obvious that there had been like a three-day drinking, smoking, carrying on party going on in this apartment. You know, looking back on it, the smell of cigarette smoke was very apparent. The ashtrays, the beer bottles. I want to say like food wrappers were everywhere. You know, just kind of uncaring. You know, I'm drunk. I don't care where everything lands kind of attitude. So the house was a mess. Then we got upstairs and you know, quickly examined him, and obviously the bathroom had some very obvious signs of death of Kristen with the blood in the tub. It was pretty much cooled and coagulated, but the big question was, where's the gun? For a couple of reasons. One of which none of us wanted an accidental discharge and one of us get shot, but his hands were up under him. I've worked a lot of suicides, and with a 45 to the head, there's no life after gunshot. None. There's no motion. There's no, oh, he made one more movement. It very instantly was like, well, this is odd. There's no gaping hole. There's no giant blood splatter on the wall. And we told everybody that. Oh, no, suicide, move on. Suicide, move on. He was stiff, from what I remember. Booger, I can tell you, was well that moment. The way he was reared into the tub, we had to lift him probably 18 inches or better because of the curvature that he exhibited when he was placed in that tub. And I say that very clearly because I believe he was placed in that tub. Immediately, you know, just your, your first sight is him bent over, bathtub full of blood. There's a gunshot hole in the wall over here. The destroyed house. Yes, it added up until you started looking at the details. You know, where's the splatter? Where's the hole? You know, we have an entrance, we have an exit, where to go? Why is it sitting here in the tub? Why did it not go through the bathtub? It's always about the details.
I hope that by now it's clear to you that the Andriacchios put a grueling amount of work into solving their son's case. Work that never should have been their responsibility to take on in the first place. But seeing as they weren't left with much of a choice, they remained diligent, doing everything they could to keep Christian's case alive. And they made progress. That was never the problem. The problem was, any progress they made was inevitably halted through the disinterest of law enforcement, two agencies who had already reached their conclusion as to what happened. End of story. And as it went, they'd continue to break through one wall just to run into another. By early 2016, an exhausted family had seemingly hit their final wall, that being the MBI's report and its ruling of suicide. That was until they received some counsel from investigator Max Mays and attorney Cynthia Speechens, who you may remember from our episode centered around the Meridian Police. Max and Cynthia encouraged the Andriacchios to shift direction, stop looking at the suspects, stop trying to get anywhere with law enforcement, and instead focus on forensic science. If they wanted definitive answers, this was the way to find them. So they found some people who could help, and our team met with these three people to discuss their findings. Do you ever wish you could become a detective and help find the clues to the case? How about all of that in a mobile game that you can take anywhere? In June's Journey, each scene leads to a new thrilling storyline. Uncover the mystery of June's sister's murder and find out about scandalous family secrets. The gameplay lets you find hidden clues as you investigate a murder mystery. Escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Let your imagination run wild when decorating your island estate and collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character. Whether you're craving a good mystery or looking for an escape, you can immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story taking you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. Each new scene takes you further through a thrilling murder mystery story that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. I travel so much while working that I personally love to play it while sitting around airports with all that free time I have. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Welcome to a journey into the heart of the Texas Renaissance Festival the nation's largest and rowdiest celebration of medieval fantasy. But what lurks beneath the facade of tights and turkey legs? Well, we dove deep into the empire to uncover a history marred by mystery and misconduct, murders, assaults, and other crimes that tarnish its legacy. This isn't just a fairy tale. It's a cautionary tale of power, fantasy, and the consequences that follow when they all collide. Search for Crime Waves Renaissance Texas on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now. Back in 2016, the Andriacchios hired a forensic consultant by the name of Michael Knox. We'll refer to him by his last name. Knox specializes in ballistics and crime scene reconstruction. We traveled to his home in Jacksonville to meet with him and have him revisit his 2016 report on Christian. Hey. Oh, hey there. Okay. Oh, okay, great. We arrived at his home, and after a brief wait on the front porch, 
Knox emerged from around the back of the house and directed us to follow him to the garage, or as he called it, his workshop. That's sort of my workshop slash I work out of here most of the time. A name that seemed suitable before even entering when he opened the door and clangs of metal sounded, acting as a doorbell. Oh yeah. So it's the it's the opposite of quiet. So I don't work out of there very much. He'd later point to a rack suspended on the back of the door and tell us about the Japanese hand saws he'd acquired over the years. An overwhelming collection of tools covered the room, all organized by type and neatly aligned, many I'd never even heard of. And some that were currently in use were laid out across multiple workbenches. Knox went on to express his side passion for woodworking and some of his projects, while we set up in what little free space we had and prepared to do a standing interview over one of the workbenches. It's called yeah. the Hepple White Hunt Board. It's uh, that oh, right there. Wow. So oh. bought the hardware and stuff. I got some wood already for it. So my name is Michael Knox, and I am a uh, forensic consultant. I specialize mostly in firearms, ballistics, shooting incident reconstruction. I've been doing this work privately since about 2010. Prior to that, I spent. Uh, little over 15 years as a police officer and detective with the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office here in Florida. About half of that time I spent as a crime scene investigator, where I worked an awful lot of shooting incidents. My company is called Knox & Associates LLC, and we got contacted directly by the Andreacchios. I think it was Ray that actually initially contacted us. Very often we get inquiries like this, where we get somebody that has a loved one that has died. Most of the time it's where the case has been ruled as a suicide, and they're convinced that it's not. You know, and so I kind of remember even communicating to them, as I do in most of these cases, sort of spell this out. Listen, I'm going to give you what the physical evidence tells us. I'm not going to give you what you want to hear. Most people will say, oh, yes, that's what I want, but you'll find in a lot of cases that you tell them, no, this appears to be a suicide, and then they get upset because that's not really what they're wanting to hear. It was a little different in this case because while the Andreacchios were very convinced and have remained convinced that Christian was murdered, they really had some substance there. So it wasn't just something that when I initially talked to them, I thought, okay, these people just can't accept you know, they seem to really have done a lot of their own homework on it. They seem to really have studied the case and have known a lot about it and have done a lot of work and spent a lot of time contemplating it. As soon as we started looking at this case, it became really apparent that this was not pointing in the direction of suicide. There were a lot of factors with respect to the crime scene, what we could see in the crime scene photographs, and then also a lot of factors with just how the investigation itself had proceeded, because Whenever you have a death investigation, it's important to always look at it from the standpoint of all the possibilities, because that's when investigators will come in and say, you know, oh, yeah, it's a suicide. And then if you have a doubt in your mind, then you sort of come up with an answer and explanation and you push that aside and you keep moving. In science, we call it confirmation bias, where you decide the result first, and then you look for the evidence to support the result. And of course, what that causes you to do is cherry pick the evidence. Everything that tends to support what you already believe, you jump on that. And any evidence that tends to refute that, you just sort of come up with a way to explain it, or you push it aside, or you ignore it. And I started seeing a lot of that here. 
And it started to become obvious that there's a lot of evidence that just wasn't really considered, wasn't looked at. A lot of things that were not done initially in terms of both the handling of the crime scene itself as well as just the investigation itself. But here in looking at this, the physical evidence really eliminated the indicators of suicide and made it where it was pretty clear to a high degree of probability that he didn't kill himself, that somebody else killed him. But the shooting itself obviously takes place within the bathroom, um, and that's The bathroom is pretty standard, about seven and a half feet deep and five feet wide. Standing in the doorway looking in, the left wall is bare. Just inside the door to the right is a light switch and an outlet. The right wall is first the vanity and mirror, then the toilet, and the bathtub makes up the back wall. We actually went in to that bathroom a good while after the shooting took place, but we went there and used a chemical called luminol, which is a blood enhancement chemical where if you darken an environment where you think you might find blood and you apply luminol, if there is blood present, then it will react to it and give off a blue-colored glow. What we found in there is that we got reactions indicating the presence of blood in areas where we would expect to have found blood on the floor and around the bathtub. But we also found some indications of the presence of blood on the ceiling above where he would have been and some of the wall areas on the opposite side of the bathroom from where he was actually found, where he was on the in the bathtub. There was blood on the exterior surface of the door. Interestingly though, some of this blood, the direction of it is coming down from the hinge side of the door toward the knob side of the door. And the only way that blood gets deposited is door is open or whatever occurs, occurs outside the door. There was a bullet hole that showed up in photographs on the wall next to the sink. And there's some blood stains around that. There's a electrical outlet. And then right next to that, there's a bullet impact, which would be indicative of the bullet that actually perforated his head. So with the gunshot wound, the bullet went in, one side came out the other, which is what we call a perforating wound. And of course, anytime you have a perforating wound, the next thing you're looking for is where did the bullet go next? Because if it comes out from anything that it passes through, it has to have another point that's going to impact something or come to rest somewhere. The bullet impact is on the opposite wall from where he is. So his body is actually slumped over the side of the bathtub and the wall where the bullet impact is would be directly to his back at that point. Well, clearly if the gunshot wound in his head was right to left, then he can't be in that position facing in the, toward the tub and have the bullet come out of the left side of his head and go behind him toward the direction of his back. So that's an indicator that he's not in that position at the time of the gunshot. He's not facing the tub. He would be facing the wall across from the toilet at that time. And, you know, an important thing to understand with gunshot wounds is a lot of the stuff you see in television and movies just is simply not real. It's not the way that gunshots actually happen and what it does to a person. You know, you watch these movies, the guy gets shot and the bullet picks him up and carries him six feet back and throws him through the plate glass window and then they fall 20 stories to their death. I mean, it's great dramatic stuff for movies. 
but it doesn't actually do that. Bullets don't move bodies. And the easiest concept to understand about that is that if the, you know, very smart guy by the name of Isaac Newton years ago figured out that if you apply a force in one direction, that you get a reaction force that's equal in magnitude in opposite direction coming back at you. So if you imagine the force that a bullet is being pushed out of the gun, that is also being sent back to the shooter. It's what we call recoil in a firearm. If the force expelled from the firearm is enough to pick a person up and throw them, then the force of recoil would have to be equal to that. Then your body's going to go with whatever way your momentum and weight are shifted. So if I'm standing straight up, I get shot, I'm going to just drop straight to the ground. If I happen to be leaning one direction or another, then I'm going to tend to fall that way because my weight is shifted in that direction. So when you look at where he is and the body positioning, is it consistent with that momentum or with that weight shift or how his weight would be carried? And the problem here is that for him to go from a position of facing the wall such that the bullet would exit the left side of his head and strike the wall at the front of the bathroom. And then for him to end up turning 90 degrees to his right and then falling over the bathtub, there would be nothing that would cause that. There would be no reason why his body would turn, his entire body would turn 90 degrees toward the bathtub and then fall over into the bathtub. Okay, so that's one indicator that says the positioning that he is in at the time of the scene being documented is not consistent with how the gunshot took place. Because the position where he is, his hips are basically square to the side of the tub. So he's facing directly across the side of the tub, upper body over the side of the tub into it. His hands and arms are outside of the tub. Legs are outside of the tub. But what adds to that is not only his body positioning, but then the positioning of where the gun itself is found afterwards. And that becomes uh, kind of a problematic issue in that the gun is underneath him to the left side of him. The indicators would put him basically uh, in front of the toilet, facing the wall opposite of the toilet, left side of his head toward the electrical outlet and, you know, toward the sink area, and likely standing or nearly full standing because of the blood spatter on the ceiling. Another one of his points of emphasis was the fact that Christian's gun was found decocked. I touched on this in the last episode, how the gun functions, and why this is important. And Knox was willing to lend his opinion on the matter. Anytime you have a shooting involving a semi-automatic pistol, the condition that you would expect to find it in would be hammer cocked, safety off. The hammer in this case is decocked when it's found. Now, that's very unusual. In and of itself, it's not really a dispositive type of piece of evidence. It doesn't really say this has to be a suicide or has to be a homicide. But when you put it in conjunction with other factors, it's just another factor that tends to indicate the fact that somebody probably handled the firearm and decocked it before it ended up in the position where it's found. After walking through each item of his report, Knox recapped his findings, which led to his opinion on the manner of death. Certainly the indicators are that it just doesn't fit with anything that's been described as far as how it took place. And I can't really find any theory with respect to it being a suicide that fits with this evidence without there having to be some other explanations that have never been presented or have never really been reliably presented to explain how evidence would get where it got and it still be a suicide. 
this case, you have a number of different items of evidence. You have a body that's in a position that's inconsistent with the location of a bullet impact in the bathroom. There's blood near the bullet impact, which tells you which way the head was facing, and it is not consistent with where the body ends up draped over the tub. You have blood on a, the exterior side of the bathroom door that's going in a direction opposite of where it would go if he was in the bathroom with the door open and committed suicide. You have the gun being in a position where it shouldn't be found had he committed suicide in a position where you could have gotten the bullet impact on the wall. And you have a decocked hammer on a gun that shouldn't be decocked. All these things don't add up. They don't really add up to this being a suicide. The indicators are very strong that it's a homicide. And the math on that says you should have been looking at this as a homicide. You should have been looking deeper at this being a homicide because that's what's indicated here. And if there is evidence that would clear it up and show it to be a suicide, it certainly wasn't looked at, it certainly wasn't presented, and it certainly doesn't show up in any of this evidence. We are aware that Michael Knox was recently featured in a TV series, which portrayed him in a negative light. This series covered an unrelated case and questioned Knox's validity, especially in regards to the techniques used in that case. We reached out to Knox to get his comment on the matter and to confirm that the techniques used in that case were not the same ones used in Christian's case. Here's what he had to say. The vast majority of what I'm talking about in there had no direct questioning or anything related to that case. It was either talking about forensics generally or I was actually in some cases talking about other cases and yet it's edited in a way to make it sound like I was talking about that case or at least edited in a way that a viewer would infer that that's what I was talking about. I do stand behind what I did because it's important to understand that my testimony was never whether or not the person who committed those robberies was or was not George Powell is simply whether or not he could be eliminated on the basis of height of a claim that he was too tall to have been the robber and I stand by the analysis to this day that you cannot eliminate him on that basis. That doesn't mean that he's in fact guilty. But what I did in that case was photogrammetry and, and what I specifically criticized about is height analysis. The techniques that were used and the, the type of analysis is done in Christian's case were completely unrelated to what was used in the George Powell case. That was a case specifically on determining the height of an individual from surveillance video. Here in Christian's case, we're doing shooting reconstruction, crime scene reconstruction type work. So for the purpose of understanding my involvement in Christian's case, they too have no real relationship to one another. Now, back to Christian's case. Knox shared a copy of his report with the Andriacchios in 2016, and upon receiving it, they immediately handed it over to MPD. But as Ray says, they were not impressed, and it obviously wouldn't lead them to take further action on the case. So they moved up the chain. And surprisingly, they were able to set up a meeting between Knox and Bilbo to discuss the report. But again, it seemingly led to nothing. And for years, this was the only opinion anyone had to go on pertaining to crime scene reconstruction and ballistics. But just a few months ago, that changed, and we were able to get a second opinion. When a friend of ours, a private investigator, Sheila Wysocki, introduced us to an acquaintance of hers, a man named Ryan Ryder, 
who is an expert in the use of a fascinating piece of technology called the Faro Scanner. Faro, spelled F-A-R-O, is the manufacturer, and this scanner they've created has some amazing capabilities. Our team went to Christian's apartment in Meridian to meet Ryan and see the scanner at work. And then from there we can measure any point and we'll end up with, if we did the whole place, we'd end up with nine billion points. But if you can think of the whole place as yeah. little bitty one inch blocks with a dot, that's how much it's breaking it down. So okay. just a ton of data. And any one of those little spots can be measured and located in space. And what's the benefit of having a 3D uh, um, image? A lot of things. Uh, once uh, crime scenes have been done by measuring tape with people, so we get an error rate just by the person being involved, and then the tape measure device using. So we we have an exception at a rate of error of half inch or better, usually an inch to half inch. With this, we're down, bringing it down to three millimeters. Ryan took numerous scans of the apartment, including the bathroom, and then traveled back home to develop the images. After he'd had some time to review the images, we sat down with him to hear what new discoveries were made from his scan of the crime scene. My name is Ryan Ryder. I own a small business called Triple R Investigations. We specialize in 3D scanning and trying to bring the 3D scanning technology and visual aspects to private investigation and law enforcement. The 3D scanner is basically a piece of equipment that utilizes laser and measures a room. But because of its technology and advanced systems, it's able to do a 360 view of the room and recreate a scene or a room or a building in the 3D aspect. Some of the things we did with the Christian Andriacchio case we utilized it to document the apartment outside and inside to show it was a two-bedroom studio apartment and focused on the bathroom where everything in this situation seems to have occurred. In the bathroom, we were able to detail it front to back in order to show the space, a very small space, may add, and give us a better understanding of that. And from that 3D scan, we're able to show through animation that one person can move around in there, twos gets a little bit crowded, and three is really crowded. So we're able to show that visually and help somebody understand that. So by scanning the apartment and the bathroom, we were able to get down to some information from the crime scene that were pictures were taken. One of interest was a defect in the wall by a electrical socket. So this defect appears to be from a gunshot, bullet entering it and causing that damage. And if you look at it closely, it's not circular in pattern. If you're facing this, it's got a small oval at the bottom, which research has shown in drywall that that bullet came in from lower than that defect to the right. So if we use our 3D scanning to visualize that, we can run a trajectory from that down into the right, which ends up in the open area in front of the toilet and the tub, which is really interesting, meaning the gunshot was probably in that area. Another item that brought us attention was the body itself. The body is positioned 
in a way that somebody that was just shot through the head and died instantly would not fall in. Gravity would allow them to go to their knees or face forward or backwards. But in this situation, Christian was, his chest was laid over a bathtub and his arms were over the same ledge of the tub, which is not a natural position for somebody to lean over in. It was more of a posed position or a placed position. From the evidence on the wall, it appears that he was turned toward the tub and pulled to that point where his chest reached the tub, which left his knees extended out, not supporting his body, and his legs crossed unnaturally for a fall like that. So with that position, it also question that comes up is his feet are extended out into the bathroom, and some of the testimony says that they opened the door and found him. When we recreate the biped, which is just the term used to simulate a human body, which gets Christian's dimensions, with the crime scene photographs, we were able to lay the 3D biped into the room and match up the measurements with the pictures. The good thing about that was that on the floors at the same cross vinyl flooring. So you're able to match his feet positioning up with that flooring, which match up to the 3D diagram. So from that, we're able to now measure the room. And with the door swing, it actually hits basically the tip of both feet as it would swing closed. And my knowledge of people having to get to people that are deceased or in distress and push a door open, they articulate that immediately every time it occurs because they had to make this effort to get to that person. And this would fall into that category, meaning if I'm going into a bathroom concerned about somebody and something stops that door, I'm going to articulate that in the near future to somebody ask you, what did you do? Because even with that, where it would stop on his feet, you would have to squeeze into the room. You couldn't just walk into the room because it's less than halfway open the way his feet actually hit at the top of the arc of that door, which is right in the middle. So you'd have to squeeze into the room sideways to enter. None of that was mentioned, which is concern, which to me says the door was open and the statements are, are false. We've covered a lot of science so far. I know it's a lot of information, but please stick with me because this last one is very important. Back in 2016, the Andriacchios hired another specialist, Dr. Jonathan Arden, who is a nationally acclaimed forensic pathologist. Hi, Hello. Hi. Dr. Arden? I'm, yes, John Arden. <laughs> Great. Hey, John. Hi. Doing well, Dennis. Jonathan Arden. Hi, nice to meet you, Jacob. Hi there. Hi, Mark Minnery. Nice to meet you, sir. He consulted in the Edward Lee Elmore case, a man who was set free after 23 years on death row, and he supervised the autopsy of victims in the D.C. sniper case. Arden is one of the best in the country when it comes to forensic pathology. By definition, forensic pathology is the determination of the cause of death through examination of the corpse. This, of course, takes into account various types of scientific analysis. Our team traveled to his home to discuss his 2016 report. 
We were greeted by Dr. Arden at the front door, and he quickly led us into the kitchen, where we were introduced to his wife. After some small talk about podcasts and the work we were doing on Christian's case, Dr. Arden asked us to follow him down to the basement, where his office was located. As he pulled up his report on the computer, we set up at a conference table nearby. Why don't we set up at the table here? Oh, yeah, that's a great um, Here's two chairs. Here's another chair you can use, and I'll just, I'll just pull my chair up to that end. I'm Dr. Jonathan Arden. I am a forensic pathologist. I've been practicing forensic pathology for about 35 years. I was a government medical examiner for 20 years, working in several different offices, including nine years in the office in New York City, five and a half years as the chief medical examiner of Washington, D.C. I primarily now act as a private consultant with attorneys in both civil and criminal matters. I also have a part-time appointment with the office of the chief medical examiner for the state of West Virginia. In addition to my um, employment, I have been a member of the National Association of Medical Examiners for over 30 years. I am now finishing my year as vice president of that organization that we call NAME. And coming January 1, 2019, I will be president of the National Association of Medical Examiners for a year. I was contacted by the attorney for the Andriacchio family in 2016 to provide consultation regarding the death of Christian Andriacchio and interpreting the autopsy and the death scene, most importantly to offer advice or opinions on the manner of death, specifically was this a suicide or a homicide. I reviewed the autopsy report, the toxicology report. I also reviewed some police reports and documents, as well as photographs, not only from the autopsy, but of the death scene. When I was consulted, I was asked particularly to address whether this death was correctly or incorrectly certified for manner of death. Namely, was this a suicide? Was this a homicide? Could we distinguish? Or perhaps was it truly an undetermined death? Very early on in the investigation, we have factors that don't add up, that don't appear to be consistent with a simple self-inflicted gunshot wound. And so there should have been question in the investigation of this death from the very beginning that said, what happened? How did it happen? Was somebody else involved? How could he have possibly done this to himself? From the beginning, there were questions, there were problems. Dr. Arden turned to his computer on the desk behind him for one final scan of his report, and then began walking us through it piece by piece. In summary, the opinions that I offered consisted of the following. First of all, the death scene was staged. The gun was found in a location between his thigh and the outside of the tub where he couldn't have placed it himself if he had shot himself. So he could not have taken the gun from his right side of his head, shot himself, moved the gun over to his left thigh outside the tub, placed it there, and have it stay or have him collapse thereafter. That simply could not happen. It tells you that he must have been in a different position and a different location in the room when he was shot. And if that's the case, if he is positioned in such a way that the bullet could pass through his head 
strike the wallboard over the vanity, pick up the foreign material in the nose of the hollow point bullet, and then perhaps ricochet and end up in the tub, then he should have collapsed where he was standing in the middle of the bathroom. So you have several sources of evidence here that tell you Christian was not over the tub when he was shot, that he had to be located and positioned differently in order for the bullet to go through his head and create the evidence that we know exists. And if that were the case, then he would have collapsed in the middle of the bathroom and he wouldn't be leaning over the tub with the gun wedged between his left thigh and the outside of the tub. So somebody had to have moved him after he was shot. Another opinion that I expressed in my report is that the gunshot wound itself does not tell you whether that was self-inflicted or inflicted by another. Christian has a tight contact gunshot wound to the right temple, meaning an entrance gunshot wound in the right temple with features that indicate that the muzzle of the gun was pressed firmly into the head when the shot was fired. Notice here that Dr. Arden uses the word temple to describe the location of the gunshot wound. When you hear temple, you're probably picturing the side of your head in line with your eye, which is a common place for a self-inflicted gunshot wound. But when you look at the autopsy photos, the entrance wound, which was on the right side of the head, is actually further back and lower than the temple. It's about one inch above where the helix, the outer rim of the ear, meets the side of his face. I think it's important to point this out because I've taken a fake gun used for instructional purposes and tried aiming it to this measured spot myself. It's very awkward and uncomfortable. And while the exit wound on the left side is in nearly the same location, it's actually a little lower, practically touching the crease where the helix meets the face. Which means if you examine this as a self-inflicted wound, you have to consider that in addition to the gun being held in such a position to create the entrance wound, it also seems his arm would have had to have been extended upward some to create that slight downward trajectory which resulted in the location of the exit wound. Not to mention, a Kimber 45 is a heavy gun, which would make it even more difficult. There is nothing about a contact gunshot wound in the right temple that requires it to be self-inflicted. Another person can come up upon a victim, press the gun into the head and pull the trigger, and you have the exact same gunshot wound. So while it is classically a self-inflicted or suicidal wound, the wound itself does not determine or establish that this was a suicide. It certainly opens up the discussion. It is something to be considered. But the wound itself is not the determinative factor. And I think that was an important point because when somebody sees a contact gunshot wound to the right temple, it's very easy to slip into the presumption that this was a suicide. And then, of course, once you start down that track, your mind is kind of already fixed there. And you, you don't necessarily have the open mind that says, 
let's consider alternatives. Let's think this through completely and make sure it all adds up before we arrive at the easy, quick conclusion. Another conclusion that Arden came to was that the ballistics evidence is inconsistent for several reasons. And while Arden doesn't consider himself an expert in ballistics, his job does require knowledge in the field. We've covered a lot on the ballistics, but Arden was able to share some additional insight. So the ballistics evidence is inconsistent for several reasons. First of all, the expended bullet, the fired bullet that went through his head, was found in the bathtub. And if he had been in roughly the position that he was found, then the bullet going from his right to his left should have impacted against the wall inside the tub to his left. But there's no bullet strike there. We do have evidence of a bullet strike on the far wall behind him over the vanity for the sink near where the electrical outlets are. And if you look at the bullet itself, this was a uh, hollow point bullet. The nature of hollow point bullets is that they tend to deform and that's by design to disperse the energy of the bullet into the tissue that's being struck. And so you have the opening in the nose of the bullet that can take on or surround foreign material that the bullet strikes. In this case, interestingly enough, that bullet has foreign material in it that looks quite consistent with the wallboard material. So now we have a bullet that appears to have struck something like wallboard. We have a defect in the wallboard on the other side of the room that looks like a bullet struck there. We have no corresponding bullet strike in the area inside the tub, which we should have had if Christian had been in that position when shot. So now we have another unexplained inconsistency that the bullet appears to have traveled in places around the room that don't add up to or don't line up with where his head was and the trajectory of the gunshot wound through his head. The last area of analysis that I have in my report is the certification by the coroner of the manner of death. We have in Mississippi a state medical examiner, that being the entity with the forensic pathologist to do the autopsy. In this case, the forensic pathologist did the autopsy, but in the autopsy report, she rendered opinions as to cause and manner of death. And she said that this was a gunshot wound to the head cause and a suicidal manner. That information then went to the coroner, a non-physician, who has the statutory authority to conduct the investigation and issue the death certificate. In this case, the coroner, of course, agreed that the cause of death was the gunshot wound, but certified the manner of death as undetermined. Now, undetermined is kind of the choice of last resort for manner of death. In most cases, you can determine that choice A is highly probable and choice B is highly improbable. For him to certify the manner of death being undetermined, I think is a bold statement of honesty, and he's not limiting himself 
to saying this must have been or this was a suicide. And the importance of that really is that by the coroner, the statutorily established medical legal death investigative authority for that jurisdiction to tell the world that he cannot say with certainty that this death was a suicide. He is giving law enforcement the green light to investigate. He's telling them it isn't clear. We need to figure this out. That should have been the single biggest factor that told law enforcement that this death is not adequately explained yet. It needs more investigation. Dr. Arden then gave us one final conclusion that he came to in reviewing Christian's case, one that has major implications. The time of death doesn't match with the time of the 911 call. We have first responders on the scene shortly after, supposedly, (laughs) the time of death. And by the time they get there, Christian already has lividity, which is the postmortem settling of the blood due to gravity. And he already has rigor mortis. Those things take time. So we have a time of death disparity that doesn't add up, doesn't make sense. We have lividity at least in one part of the body, in the back of his leg, in the calf area, that doesn't match his positioning. And that's also a telltale sign of somebody who has been dead for a period of time, long enough for the blood to settle in one direction due to gravity, and then having been moved such that the body surface that had been down is now up. And the settling of the blood after death, since you have no heartbeat, you have no circulation, no blood pressure, is all gravity. Whichever part of you is down relative to gravity is where the blood settles. And so if you look at the death scene photo of Christian on his knees leaned over into the tub, the calves of his legs are facing straight up. Gravity goes straight down. So how he gets lividity in the back of the right calf, when the right calf is facing up in that position, is inexplicable. The degree of development of rigor mortis in Christian upon the first responders arriving at the death scene shortly after the 911 call, and then also when they removed him to bring him for the autopsy, is really not consistent at all with the time frame of the 911 call. He clearly had been dead longer than what the report was for the 911 call to reach that degree of rigor mortis such that, as was described, when they removed him from the bathroom, his body maintained the bent configuration as he was over the tub, even when they put him in the body bag and even when we see the photographs at the medical examiner's office, they open the body bag and he's still in that position. So that is highly inconsistent with the time frame of the 911 call. The condition of Christian's body clearly indicates to me that he had been dead for a substantially longer period of time than 
when the 911 call was made. Having well-developed rigor mortis and lividity indicates that he had been dead for hours, not minutes. Looking at all of the evidence, in my opinion, the manner of death for Christian Andriacchio is homicide. And I've signed my name to that in my report, and I would testify that in court in a heartbeat. I want to make sure you catch that part towards the end of Arden's report about the time of death, because it's very important. Although he cannot place an exact time to the hour, what he can say in confidence is that Christian was dead for hours before the 911 call was placed at 4.45 p.m. And if he's right that the time of death doesn't add up, then it should make you wonder whether any of what we know about February 26 adds up. I was living in Willow Ridge apartment on February 26, 2014. And when I was sitting down in my living room, I heard a gunshot. I could tell it was really close by. I thought maybe it was in a parking lot or something. Copable is a production of Black Mountain Media and Tenderfoot TV in conjunction with Cadence 13. Executive producers are Dennis Cooper, Jacob Bozarth, Donald Albright, Payne Lindsay, and me, Mark Minery. Additional production by Whitney Bozarth, Courtney Cooper, Meredith Stedman, and Mason Lindsay. Audio editing, mixing, mastering, and sound design by Resonate Recordings. If you have a podcast or are considering starting a podcast of your own, I urge you to check them out at ResonateRecordings.com. Theme music and score by Dirt Poor Robbins. Cover art by Drew Bardana. I want to extend a special thanks to Mike Hines, Sheila Wysocki, and Lance Black. You can follow us on social media at Copable Podcast. Show notes, as well as bonus content, can be found on our website, CopablePodcast.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please take time to subscribe rate and review. Your feedback is greatly appreciated. And lastly, if you have any information related to the death of Christian Andriacchio, please email us at tips at blackmountainmedia.net or call us at 470-300-4915. Thank you for listening and tune in for new episodes every Monday.